it's good to see you here today. And for you that are watching us, uh, we want to thank you for being with us today. And we just pray that all will go well, that God will just be glorified as we lift it up to all. I want you to turn to Matthew as we continue our study, Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at one part of this passage because of the illustration that follows as far as uh, it being demonstrated or not demonstrated through the disciples by their reaction uh, after Jesus tells them about him going to Jerusalem once again. We will look at that next week. But uh, this week we're going to be looking at Jesus telling them about, once again, reminding them that he's going to Jerusalem and what his purpose is, what he has come to do. And they still have a hard time. We can't be too hard on them because you just think of all the times that you had to sit in a classroom and not get something and maybe not ever get it, but hopefully get it at the end. And these disciples do get it later, but uh, much later, and some of them do. And so, uh, as we look at this, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, we read, uh, and, and I'm just going to be reading uh, verses 17 through 19, because these are the verses that I mentioned earlier that we will be looking at this morning, and, but the other verses go with this, verses 20 through 28, and we'll be looking at that next week. It says, And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. First time he mentions that to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. I mention that again. That's very important because the last part of it, the first part, I think shook him up so much that the last part they just didn't hear. And we do that a lot of times too, don't we? When somebody's explaining something to us, uh, it catches us by surprise and we don't hear all of what they're saying. And sometimes it's the most important thing. I'll never forget um, in reading something. I did not do what I was supposed to do. And one of my professors, in listening to it, the student body talk about this uh, this one writer with the article. Uh, uh, and they asked me what I thought about it. Well, I'd only read the first 10 pages. And, and uh, you know, I said, man, he is all wrong. He is in left field. It's terrible what he's saying. You know, I could I could get the jest from where where he was going, and the others were agreeing with me and everything. And, you know all this, and then this professor politely said, uh, "Mr. Perkins, said yes, sir. Did you read all of it? Yes, sir. All of it? No, sir." He said, "So you didn't read the last part where he summed up and said he didn't agree, did, uh, he didn't agree with what." Others were saying in the direction he was going. And I felt like sort of not <laughs> felt like saying, Well, why didn't you ask some of the others that said something? Why didn't you figure it on me? 
But anyway, I learned something very important there. You know, a lot of times we just hear or read what we and see what we want to see, and and sometimes what is being said shocks us, and we don't hear all of it. This is the case here. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and and we'll begin looking at the scripture. Father, I just want to thank you once again for the music and for the service and for the opportunity to glorify you. And I just pray that your grace. If anything's going to happen that's going to make this service meaningful, it's got to be the Holy Spirit working, your grace taking control, and Lord, you doing a mighty work. And so we just ask for this to happen. We just pray that you'll reveal to us the truth that you want us to, to hear. Lord, that you'll teach us, that you'll convict us, that you'll encourage us, that you'll direct us, whatever it might be, God. I pray that it'll be done and that we will allow you to do this because you don't force yourself upon us. You may convict us strongly, working in a certain way or trying to direct us in a certain way. Uh, and if we're stubborn, we will refuse to listen. But help us not be stubborn. Help us to be open to the truth and hear what you would have us to hear. In Jesus' name. You know, the world and the church, they differ a lot in many different ways, over many different things. And one such thing that they differ in a lot of times is greatness, what they consider to be great. You know, I, I asked uh, my kids this, uh, this uh, yesterday uh, what they considered greatness or what, what did it mean to them. And I caught them off guard, and they didn't have time to think before I had to leave. And so uh, they, uh, you know, they answered it in a good way, though. They said it was relative. It was relative to thinking. And so to some people, greatness may mean one thing, and to another, another thing. And that's true, isn't it, today? The way the world thinks, the way we think so often. Uh, with the world, true greatness, though, lies usually in the controlled use of power, doesn't it? Or the results of hard work. Or in making a name for themselves. Or wealth. The lines of Shakespeare, or, or from Shakespeare, it said, But be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness. And some have greatness for us to find. Let's look, though, what, at what the Lord says and what he's illustrating to the disciples in trying to get this across because he wants them to understand they've got a misconception. They've got a, a, under, a misunderstanding about what greatness is. Now, who are they looking for as their Messiah? Someone to come in and take control and take over Rome and deliver them from bondage and ride in on that white horse, charging the way of this type of thing. And Jesus already has told them two times as he's revealed to them that he's the Messiah, he's told them two times already the purpose and what's going to have to happen when he goes through to Jerusalem. But they're only hearing what they want to hear, evidently. They're not getting the full picture. 
And so Jesus once again is describing to them what greatness is. And he has been describing to them. As we look back, briefly look back over what has been said, uh, what greatness is in a few moments. But the greatness is found that Jesus is talking about in the manifestation of the atonement. There's so much involved in that, isn't it? The atonement meaning that he came to atone for our sins, to pay the price for our sins. Now, who is he? It is Jesus who is God the Son, who stepped out of heaven, who stepped off of his throne up there, took upon him the form of man, remained all God, but just put that glory inside of man. And, and so he walked about what people saw was another person. Unless their eyes, they allowed their eyes to be opened and the Holy Spirit showed them that Jesus was a true Messiah. And so Jesus is letting them know because what's going to follow, they're going to be having problems if you read on about the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with their children saying, she bowing down, making the request of him, <coughs> saying, what do you wish? She said to him, command that your kingdom, or in your kingdom, these sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Places of power. So greatness, he's letting them know because they're going to have to experience, if they're going to stay with him, if they're truly going to be believers, if they're going to accept God's grace and be born again, then what is in store for them is not what they're thinking about and not what they're visualizing, not what they're seeing. So he's, he's letting them know that greatness is manifested through atonement. And it's accomplished by him, Jesus Christ. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. Jesus says, just in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this is directly opposed to how the world most of the time views greatness, isn't it? In this passage, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. We know that from the Bible and from studying this that it's called the Passion Narrative. And uh, this is where Jesus is confronted, he's judged, and he's crucified. And so, we have just talked about the parable of the owner of the vineyard and his laborers have. And that was about rewards. And every one of the parables are explosive stories that provide us a window to look through to see what the kingdom of God is about and what it looks like. And so in the kingdom, earthly calculations just don't work. They just don't work. And so they seem like it's a, you know, as you're looking at it, it's, it's an upside down world to them. So in the parable of the landowner, we see a beautiful picture of grace and especially the graciousness of God 
It talks about rewards. It talks about, you know, the present sacrifice that becomes eternal privileges. And so the parable is summed up by saying many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. So Jesus is warning the disciples not to use human yardsticks when measuring eternal rewards. Jesus' estimation of worthiness is quite different from most of ours. And so the story is not devised, this, this parable is not devised to, uh, or designed to uh, teach us about labor management relationships. Nor is it a story designed primarily to teach about salvation, although that is involved to a degree. But the main purpose, the main emphasis is on rewards, <clears throat> but that's not the main principle of it. Jesus is warning about developing a sense of comparison and entitlement attitude. And that's just not what works in heaven. That's not, as you look through the window, what you see concerning the kingdom of God. And so the Lord wants us to think about the attitude of the heart with which a disciple should serve him. So, Jesus, the crowd, we, we look in verses 17 through 20, the crowd is following Jesus. They're, or they're walking with Jesus, and probably some of these people were following him because of his reputation still, right? But I would assume that not all of them were following Jesus. They were just walking with Jesus because of who he was. Some of them were headed to Jerusalem for what? The Passover, right? I mean, that's a big gathering. And so we're going to first look at Jesus' purpose for coming to earth. His purpose for coming to earth. You see, in his purpose, Christ describes what greatness looks like in the kingdom. He said, and as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and the scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. <clears throat> now who is this son of man that he's talking about? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. We know as believers who it is. In this passage, Jesus, first of all, we want to look at, Jesus gives this third and last prediction, straightforward prediction, of his impending suffering, his death, and resurrection. If you look back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it, he said that he must be killed. That was the first time he mentioned it. And then in Matthew 17, 23, they will kill him. He mentioned they. Now in this passage, he expands on what is going to happen in Jerusalem. First they, we know the Sanhedrin, will condemn him to death. In other words, they'll give judgment against him. Now, this is Jesus' first mention of the trial. 
first mention. Second of all, for the first time, Jesus mentions the Jewish leaders would turn him over to who? The Gentiles. And this is what must be done if they want him to be killed. You see, under a Roman rule, the Jews had no right to carry out a dead sinners. That meant that they had to rely on the Romans to perform their dirty work. So, this is what's going to happen. Then third, for the first time, Jesus gave the details of the passion that, that he would be mocked and flogged, beaten and crucified. Now, both his words and the truth that comes from those, of course, convey the very simple and clear and explicit events that would happen. I mean, he's not disguising them. He's not telling them uh, as in a parable or anything else. He's letting them know straightforward what's going to happen. He's speaking in clear, ordinary terms. Some that I could even understand. And he was stating what would soon become reality and historical facts. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they are so very important. They form the central events of biblical revelation both in the Old Testament and the New as Dr. Criswell wrote a book, The Scarlet Thread Throughout the Bible. I mean, you, you look all throughout the Bible, and that's the theme here. So, as we look at this, the death and resurrection, they were no miscalculation or accident. I don't care what anybody says. Jesus knew about them before the foundation of the world. The suffering and the death of Messiah. It was planned by the Heavenly Father ages before they plotted, the men plotted it in their minds, their evil minds. So clearly Jesus, he wanted the disciples to understand this. He wanted them to know about this. He wanted them to see, to remember what was going to happen because he did not want them to get discouraged and leave to drop out, to fall away. So he wanted to prepare them for what would not only happen to him, but the severe uh, danger that they would be in also. It's not going to be some easy road. It's not going to be some pie-in-the-sky event where there's not going to be any problems or difficulties or the, you know, uh, the sweetness of it all and the snowflakeness of it all. It's, it's going to be difficult. And so he, he wanted them to understand that the times of suffering for the Messiah were a part of God's great redemptive plan. This is so important. It wasn't something that happened that they came up on, that they forced on Jesus, so let's just disband as disciples. He wanted them to know that God was sovereign, he was in control, and that this was his plan. 
from before the beginning of earth. That was the reason that he came to earth to suffer and die to be resurrected. And aren't you glad? We hate that it had to happen this way. But the innocent blood had to be shed. And this was a just God who demanded it. And Jesus met the demands. Man could not. Jesus knew how difficult it was for the disciples to comprehend what he was telling them, especially at this point. He knew that, that they had been a, a, attuned to uh, the popular Jewish concepts of the Messiah, which talked about a glorious, conquering, reigning Messiah who would ride in and take control and, and, and win the battle and defeat the enemy. To most Jews of his day, the suffering and the dying Messiah, it was unthinkable. I mean, go to the Galatians, go to the Old Testament. It was unthinkable to think that somebody would die, and not only die, but die on the cross as a criminal. So the Jews were looking for a lion, not a lamb. But Jesus came as the lamb this time. So they start up towards Jerusalem. And up means uh, that Jerusalem was situated on a ridge about uh, 2,550 feet above sea level. And from any direction, uh, Jerusalem was considered up. And especially from the Dead Sea where they were probably crossing over from and, and about 1,200 uh, feet below sea level, which would be for their climb with the 2,500 would be about 3,700 uh, foot elevation gain. But going up to Jerusalem meant more than just geography. It meant more than dealing with the height, sea level, and, and up. You see, it meant a celebration for the Jews. The Passover was a celebration, was it not? Going up to Jerusalem was what every Jew was raised to do. And here they were with the Messiah. You've got to get this in mind. Here was the Son of God. He is claimed to be the Messiah. And going up to Jerusalem and going for the Passover, man, we're going to have victory here. And they did. But not the way they were looking. We're told that Jesus took the 12 disciples aside uh, by themselves. And that implies that Jesus had something to say just to them that was very important. And so, uh, you know, we do the same thing today. I mean, uh, with my children, I remember raising them up, and if they were going somewhere, and they were going somewhere with a friend, what did we do? We pulled them aside. Now they knew, number one, it was either for problems that they had caused or number, and correction to come, or number two, instruction. So we pulled them aside and we would instruct them about how to act, what to do, and hopefully what to say. And not to be an embarrassment. So, we pulled them aside to say something to them that was very important. And they needed to listen and heed. 
Jesus was preparing his disciples for what would happen during the next week in Jerusalem. And such frank matters called for this private conversation. Now, why this private conversation? Well, that allows for a direct, more direct conversation between the individuals, doesn't it? And not everybody, you know, being sidetracked and everybody being around. It was a one-on-one -on -one type of situation, but one-on-one -on -one with twelve. And so, and plus, it gives more attention uh, to, or it, it allowed more attention to be given for the directives and the plans that were to be issued out. So Jesus called the disciples aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the word behold was a common exclamation, and it means uh, calling special attention to something of importance. And in this context, it also carries the idea of resolution and conviction. In other words, it, what I say is true. I'm going to be crucified. This is it. No ifs and buts about it. And then he's, if you look there, he, he puts in the, the day, the week, would be going with him. Mark tells us that they were amazed and those who followed him were fearful. In other words, the word amazed refers to great astonishment and bewilderment. Sometimes it's accompanied by immobility. And so inability to correctly comprehend and react to an idea or event. In other words, did I hear this correctly? And then they just push it aside. But for a moment they were saying, what, what? Oh, well, Jesus, what about who's going to sit on the right and left? Didn't I? So, you know, uh, it's, uh, here they could not make sense of what was going to happen. What Jesus was revealing to them about his identity as Messiah was in total opposition to what they had been taught by their leaders and what they were looking for. And so a leader to them would come and defeat Rome and set them free, and then set up his rule over them, and over all the nations. This thing about suffering and dying and, and being raised again, well, what is this having to do with it? Well, it's kind of like, you know, and this is not an ideal illustration comparison, but, you know, if, if we call the coach for the University of Georgia, and say they get back to play the next day, and they have a, a ball game. And we call the coach, and we said, uh, "What? What are you going to plan? What's your plan? Uh, we're looking for a national championship." Coach said, "Well, my plans are: I come in and I just try to piece the man out of this good man." Show them true character. You know, whether we win or lose, they got to learn. We may lose all the ball games, but 
But hey, I want to show them what it means by losing so that they can be winners in life. You think they're going to hire that? <laughs> Not with life. So Jesus tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem in order that all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He said that in chapter 18. In other words, this is no accident, guys. This is no coincidence. This is not fate. This is not by chance. This is the very culmination of the redemptive plan of God. It's not something that just happens. So the disciples knew that they were going to Jerusalem. They knew that at Jerusalem there would be a celebration of Passover. So they would be doing that with Jesus. They just didn't know that Jesus himself was God's ultimate and only true Passover lamb. They were thinking lion, but he was thinking lamb. They were thinking kingdom and rule and reign. He was thinking sacrifice. They were thinking glory. We want to take it all. He was thinking suffering and death. Jesus knew the confusion and, and the misunderstanding, as I said earlier. So he continually had to remind them. But this was his third and final reminder. He had to repeat it over and over again. Just like I said, in school, we have things repeated over and over again. A good teacher will do that. And for us who could never get it, we would take it over and over again. The same class. So with the disciples, it was no different. The disciples did not fully understand what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. Even after the resurrection, he rebuked to the disciples for their lack of comprehension of what the scriptures had long before revealed. In Luke chapter 24, he says, Oh foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Wasn't long after that, he even told uh, the eleven and, and some other believers that gathered with them in Jerusalem, he said, thus it is written in Luke 24, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Paul and Peter had to constantly remind the Christians, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus always was in God's plan. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. It was destined for him to be the sacrifice for our sins in perfect accordance with God's revealed plan. So let's just look at these uh, predictions that were repeated. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to chief priests, scribes, and they will condemn him to death, will deliver him up to the Gentiles, mock him and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised again. So the Son of Man, it speaks of his humanity and his divinity, his incarnation and his divineness. Jesus declared that the Son of Man would be delivered. Some say betrayed, some translations say betrayed, and he was betrayed by Judas, wasn't he? But also included in that delivered is what? God delivered him over to him. It wasn't them taking him 
and Jesus going against his will, it was him willfully going. And so both are included in there. And so the chief priests and scribes consist of the Jewish leadership there. Rome did not allow subject nations to impose a death penalty, so that meant that these Jewish leaders had to find some kind of condemning judgment upon Jesus, and so they had to hand it over to Rome, and they had to approve it also. But the Roman governor did not see it as that offensive. And so what did they do? They blackmailed him. They said in uh, John 19, 12, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So they were blackmailing him, making sure that they carried out what they wanted. Their evil scheme was accomplished. So the Lord describes what will be involved in his passion. He will be delivered up to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and scourge him and crucify him and on the third day, he will be raised. And the mocking and the scourging was a common practice of prisoners who were not Roman citizens. First Pilate had Jesus scourged with leather whips that had sharp pieces of bone attached to it or in it and uh, embedded in there and, and uh, glass. And so, um, or sharp pieces of uh, bone and metal, excuse me. And so the Roman soldiers uh, took Jesus into the platorium and, and gathered the whole Roman uh, cohort around him and they stripped him and they, they put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they uh, crowned it down on his head and a reed they put in his right hand. And then they kneeled before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And after that, they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on his head. This is found in Matthew 27. And after this awful treatment, the Lord, they, they took him away to be crucified. The sufferings of Christ before and during his crucifixion Always use the plural, and this is so important. In 2 Corinthians 1 5, you'll see this. Philippians 3 10, Hebrews 2 10, 1 Peter 1 11 and 4 13. Why? Well, the reason for this was to let the reader know that Christ's suffering was multi dimensional. In other words, the physical pain of the crucifixion, it was excruciating enough. These sufferings should never be minimized. He felt every bit of it. When they opened up his skin with those leather strips with the metal and, uh, you know, embedded in them and, and all that was in the bone, he experienced every bit of it. But the greatest suffering, and hear me here, the greatest suffering he endured was not physical, as bad as that was, it was emotional and spiritual. Isaiah vividly predicted this when he said, you know, we sang about the majesty of God this morning. He has no stately form of majesty. When he was beaten, he was beaten terribly as a man. That we should look upon him 
nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was no majesty in that. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Isaiah 53. Isaiah lets us know that Jesus' sufferings went much deeper than the physical. You see, the Messiah would endure inner sufferings. For he had to suffer as a sinless man. Yes, a sinless man. For the offenses of sinful men and women. Who despised and rejected. He was indeed stricken by his own heavenly father in, in order that he could bear the penalty fallen on sinful man. The Lord, it says, was pleased to crush, crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see, he had the betrayal of the the pain of betrayal and disloyalty of those close to him. You ever been betrayed by your friends? Talked about, run down, said things that weren't true. He was mocked by the leaders of his own people. Not only that, he suffered the pain of death itself, as we talked about earlier. To save the lost whom he loved with infinite love. He had become for them the sin he hated with infinite hatred. But Jesus assured the disciples, promising them that his death would not be the end. Therefore, on the third day, Jesus said he would be raised up, never to face suffering or death again. He died to conquer sin and death, the penalty. Jesus died so that those who believe in him would never have to die again. The reality of the Lord's suffering and the role of disciples would play a very prominent part in the next segment that we're going to be looking at in the gospel. The words and attitudes of the disciples revealed that they, did, that they had failed to comprehend the gravity of, of this prediction. 
we will see the distorted focus and lack of understanding concerning the the, uh, the kingdom greatness and the and the, uh, the disciples and the part that they had in. We live in a proud and egotistical world where people think that greatness is achieved by pushing and promoting themselves. Jesus will take us or let us know that this type of lifestyle is unacceptable according to kingdom living. We live in a culture where pride and self-esteem are considered supreme virtues. Pride is exalted and humility is the little and made fun of. This was evidenced during the days of the Roman Empire and is again being promoted in our day and time. But this is not kingdom living. And this is what Jesus addresses now. You see, God's estimation of worthiness is quite different than ours. It's a person who humbly comes before Jesus, gives himself to the Lord, knowing and realizing that they cannot save themselves, and then serves the Lord, knowing and realizing that they cannot bring honor and glory to God by their own hands. Does that mean that we shouldn't work hard, that we shouldn't do things, that we shouldn't plan things? No. It doesn't mean that. It means that we should, but we include the Lord. What is our purpose in doing that? To glorify God. That's kingdom. Humbly realizing that it doesn't matter how popular we may become, how what position of authority we may get. That we're only placed there because God has allowed us to be. And we are placed there to demonstrate our humility and our service and our gratefulness to Him. Our thankfulness. Realizing to remain there, we've got to totally be dependent upon Him at all times. Bringing honor and glory to him through all that we say and do. That's kingdom. Let's go to the Lord. Father, it's not always easy. Matter of fact, it's not easy any of the time almost. To live kingdom. Because in so many ways it opposes what we've been taught to promote ourselves and, and we can do anything on our own and this type of thing. God, help us to realize that apart from you, we cannot do anything that will affect your kingdom in the right form and fashion apart from depending upon you and allowing you to be in control of our lives. We go to work, God, we give it our best because we're wanting to glorify you. And by giving it our best, then we do the best work that we can, possibly can, can do by your grace and knowing that that's all we can do. 
And Lord, if we're over other people, we realize that that it's surrounding ourselves with people because we can't do everything. Not everything the, the way that you would have us to do, the best that you would have us to be done. But we can do certain things with the gifts and talents that you've given us the best that we can. And so we include others in it. We're not out to get rewards and, and trophies. It's, it's Lord giving everything to you and honoring you and thanking you for what we do. And just performing the best we can in the God of work. Help us to do that as a church. In Jesus' name. Let's stand. God would have you to come and fill at the altar, make some kind of decision, you feel free to.